Father in heaven, God, we thank you that we can gather together again on the Lord's Day, a day to rest from our labor and worship you and focus our hearts upon you. And um, as we spend more time this morning thinking about and, and looking into your word about the topic of our work and our vocation, I, I pray that you would help our thinking and our affections to be shaped more and more after what is true and right and good and after what you have revealed to us about reality and, and our role in this world from your word. I pray that you would equip us to be more faithful in our vocations, in the home and in the workplace and in the church, and that ultimately you would be shaping us more and more into the image of Christ. In his name we pray. Amen. You're holding down the right side, Gerilyn. Or, uh, <laughs> uh, I'm sure they'll trickle in. Um, so here we are, our fourth week on work and vocation. Here's our schedule. This is our last week as we're thinking about really like the initial, if you're thinking of the big picture of the Bible, starting with creation and God's design. We spent the last two weeks looking at really how God Worked how he worked over six days and then he rested for a day and how that pattern uh, formed a model for us to follow as his creatures. Those were made in his image. And, and last week we talked about the dignity of work, how work has inherent dignity, that n- apart from even necessarily um, you know, the results that come from it, just the work itself is how God, God made us to, to work. He is a worker and um, our work has dignity because we're made in his image. Uh, some of you might remember, I talked about this, I think one of the, maybe the introduction week. Uh, if you can think about, you know, the, the world, we've got God as the ruler over the whole world, and then, you know, you and I, his human creatures, there's a vertical relationship there that we, we have with God as the creator, the ruler. We're his image bearers, we're under him. Um, and then we're all, you know, obviously there's not just one of us, there's you know, 8 billion of us now, we're relating horizontally with other humans that are also image bearers of God. And then as his image bearers, we are stewarding the world that he made. So there's a an aspect of stewardship that we'll also talk about today. So today, in, in thinking about work as cultivation and service, we're going to be thinking about the, this horizontal component of work, how we are serving one another, and, and in the vertical, in the sense of downward towards the earth, how we're, we have a responsibility to cultivate and care for the earth. Ultimately, we're also going to see, I mean, that these only make sense when we have a correct relationship with God vertically, when He is ruler, when we're every, all of this is done under um, subjection to Him. But... Today we'll be thinking mainly about cultivation and service. And we'll see actually all of our vocations are going to have some relationship with how we relate with the world and then how we relate with other people. So it's going to be different. You might have to you'll think through as we, as we go about how this affects your life and your vocation, your, your work. But um, all of our work is going to have some aspect of cultivating the world and then serving others. The big picture, just in a sentence, as we look, maybe the first 20 or so minutes about cultivation and then the last bit of the class about service. 
Work as cultivation, we can summarize that as saying the pattern of work from Genesis 1 is the creative and assertive rearranging of raw material of God's creation in such a way that it helps the world in general and people in particular thrive and flourish. So, remember we saw this even with God in Genesis 1. When He created, He formed and then He shaped and then he called forth the dry land, and he, called, he created the animals. He was really he was creating material, and then he was arranging it, and shaping it, and giving it structure, and, and naming things, and dividing them. And, and so we're going to see that really as a pattern for us to continue that process of rearranging the raw material of the earth. That's what, in a sense, Adam was called to do in Genesis 1 and 2. We looked at that last week in, in cultivating the ground and naming the animals and how we continue to do that in other ways. We'll, look, we'll think about that. Uh, but then secondly, we're going to look at work as service. And this is actually a quote from Tim Keller, but he says, Our daily work must be reconceived as an assignment from God to serve others. So, um, you know, that's maybe not... The idea of serving others is not necessarily new. You know, um, we know the second com- greatest commandment. Um, first, love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. And second, love your neighbor as yourself. But what you may not have thought about as much, I know I have not necessarily, is that that loving your neighbor includes, and a lot of, um, for all of us, you have neighbors in your workplace. If you're in, in the workplace or if you're at the home, it's going to look different. But it's not just the person who lives down the street. It's not even just the people in your church, although it does include them. But it's also, if you're going to spend eight or nine hours a day in a workplace, it's going to include those people as well. So those people whom you serve in the workplace, um, that's really... We're going to think about how that God actually assigns us and even uses the language of calling to put a, place us in the world to, to serve others. So those are the two big ideas. We'll start off with work as cultivation. You remember this coming up for last week we looked at this verse, Genesis 1, 28. God blessed them. God said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it. And have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over every living thing that moves on the earth. And then we saw in Genesis 2 that Adam was doing that. He was God gave him some specific commands, name the animals, work the ground, keep and work the garden. And then as we go on through the story, I mean, we're all, for the time being, we're going to skip over Genesis 3, although the fall and sin and the curse radically affects all of our work. So that's going to be more of next week, though. We're going to think start thinking about the, how the curse has shaped everything that we deal with in our work. But in Genesis 4, uh, we, read, we hear about Abel and Cain. Abel was a keeper of sheep, and Cain was a worker of the ground. And I think we're meant to understand that. I mean, you know, we know Abel and Cain were... Cain's sacrifice was not accepted. Abel's was. But I think that from it's not as though Cain's vocation was was a lesser value. They were both doing, in a sense, work that was in the image of God, keeping sheep and working the ground. Uh, they were cultivating, um, taking dominion of the earth. You know, Their sacrifices being accepted, I think, was more of a matter of their heart and their, their, relation, their relationship toward God. But we see them in Genesis 4 um, ruling the earth, in this sense, taking dominion of the earth in this early stage in human history. We go down a few more cha- a few more um, verses in Genesis four. You come to these verses, Genesis four, seventeen to twenty-two. Uh, would somebody want to read that for me? Somebody who can pronounce these names. 
Or not, just do your best. No, uh, no one will know if you did it correctly. He knew his wife, and she conceived his word Enoch. When he built the city, he called the name of the city after the name of his son, Enoch. So Enoch was born Irad, and Irad fathered Mahujael, and Mahujael fathered Mahujael, and Mahujael fathered Lamech, and Lamech took two wives. And the name of one was Ada, and the name of the other Zilhah. Ada bore Jabal, and he was the father of those who dwell in the tents and have livestock. His brother's name was Jubal. He was the father of all those who play the lyre and the pipe. Zilhah also bore Tubal-Cain. He was the forger of all instruments of bronze and iron. The sister of Tubal-Cain was Nahama. Great. Thanks, Trish. So, you know, these verses, you might, you might have just read over them. You know, if you're reading through your Genesis 4 and your Bible reading plan, I mean, it's, you may not have thought much about them. They're, they're kind of just included, it seems, almost as, as an aside. It's in the storyline, you've just had the fall. You've had God, um, well, you've had Cain murder Abel, and then God is judging Cain and sending him out from Eden, and he's going off and settling in this new land. I think, though, this is interspersed here. Right after this, you're actually going to have Lamech, who kills a man. And so there's, we see the, the curse and the effects of the fall in human society. But then we here we have some details about this development of human society that I think are meant for, we're meant to understand these as mankind actually doing what God had made them to do and, and subduing and, and cultivating and filling the earth. So what do you see in here... In the, the details that you see here, what do you see in here that would be could be understood as as really obedience to and fulfillment of God's command in Genesis one, the one, the one we just looked at that said, "Be fruitful, multiply, fill the earth, subdue it, and have dominion." That was the commission that God gave to Adam. And so now, you know, Genesis four, what do you see here that humanity is doing that is actually obeying that commission? Fruitfulness. Fruitfulness, yeah. They're having children. I mean, that's an ordinary thing in the sense that all we're all, you know, it's not a spiritual calling necessarily. At least we don't think of it that way. But this ordinary procreation, having children, they're they're filling the earth. What else? I had some ranchers. Yeah. All right, we got some ranchers. <laughs> well, it was done in marriage. It was took a wife, fathered. Yeah. I think that's Two. important in. <laughs> <laughs> oh yeah, so too, too. Uh, right. Yeah, which we're seeing. Back then, that was. Well, yeah, it was. Even then, I think that was. We're seeing cracks in the God's design. You know, we're seeing the effect of the fall interspersed in here. But there are some good as well. Like, I mean, having children, having in the family, um, ranching. By that, Trish, what did you you mean? Um, livestock. Yeah. Livestock, caring for for livestock and. Uh, well, they have tents. They're 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 raising livestock, which presumably they're raising livestock for probably not just as pets, right? Um, they're raising livestock for food, maybe for uh, you know. We saw even in Genesis three there was clothing that they got from when God killed a, a goat, I think, or it was a, an animal of some kind, and made for them skins. It doesn't say what kind of animal. They made skins from the garment. So um, they're raising livestock not just for fun. They're they're presumably eating them and and using their hides for things. What else? There's worship, because there's, well, play the lyre and pipe, and then also forger of all instruments, so there's, there's work, there's... 
Yeah, so that's it. so they play the lyre and pipe, which I guess we don't know. We're not necessarily told that they're playing it in praise of God, although I'm sure there were people because we read later actually that people began to call upon the name of the Lord. So there was people I'm sure using the lyre and pipe for worship. But what else? I mean, just even from that, you can see there's there's music that <laughs> you say garage band. Yeah. Um, well, and for them to even get the bronze and iron, you gotta, you gotta dig it up. Yeah. They've got a, there's metallurgy in some fashion where they're working with the, the natural world and they're taking those elements and then they're forging. I don't know, it's kind of speculative. I don't know what that looked like for them to forge instruments, but I think those instruments, I mean, I, I don't know for sure, but my reading of that was not necessarily like musical instruments, but um, like tools, things that they would use to to build things. And you know, you, you probably take it for granted, but you know, we've got wrenches and screwdrivers, all these metal things. If if you didn't have those, it would be difficult to build anything. So I think they have. I think that's you know the instruments of of um, like more like tools and um, building. But going back to the lyre and pipe, I think you can see, understand from that even, you know, they're taking, I mean, sound waves is, is something that God made. You know, I sit down at a piano, really, you know, you're playing notes, but you're, um, you know, the hammer is hitting the string and it's vibrating and it's making a sound wave. That's something, and same thing with a guitar, you know, other instruments use different ways to put together those sound waves. But you just make sound waves, like, randomly, and it's not necessarily beautiful i mean i can just play anyone can sit down like son i'll sit down and just bang on the piano and it's not beautiful so i think we're to understand that i mean just as with when we're cultivating the land to um, bring out crops from the land that there's a there's a, a work and an intentionality and a that has to be done in order to bring forth fruitfulness and the same thing with music it's like there's a design and intentionality and arranging notes to create something beautiful which i think what we will talk in a second but i think that it really forms a basis not just for music but you know god made us to create beautiful things whether that's music or art or uh, you know whatever the the medium i guess there's other ways that we can do that what else we talked about ranching livestock uh, having children, music, instruments of bronze and iron civilization they built a city yeah they built a city now, was that a sinful thing for them to build a city? What do you guys think? No? Neil says no. Anyone agree or disagree? Or Remember in Genesis 11, seven chapters later, they're going to build a city. They're going to build a tower. Um, and God, just to play devil's advocate, well, that was something God went down and disrupted. But why? what's the difference between Genesis 11? I, mean, I don't have the text, so you, maybe you have to go from your... Memory, but anyone remember what the difference is between Genesis 11 when they build a tower and God disrupts their work, and here where they're building a city? Yeah. Yeah. Now Genesis 11 it specifically says, "Let us get together, build a city, or build a tower to make a name for ourselves." It was all about human. You know, there was like you know, this is you take God out of the picture. It was we're going to be supreme. We're going to rule. We're going to make a name for ourselves, but that's not necessarily. That doesn't mean the city building is wrong. It means doing it for your own glory is wrong. So I think that's important, Neil. I mean, I think you're right. Building a city, 
uh, which there's a lot that goes into that. I mean, I don't know what it, exactly what it, uh, what it was like in whatever this was, 6000 BC, without the technologies that we have now. But you know, organizing together into society and including you know caring for physical needs of a of a group of people. I think that would include um, governing. You know, there's got to be structure. You can't just if you build a city. Somebody's got to manage and kind of help oversee that process. There has to be order. There has to be some amount of governance. Um, and how do you keep the order when things don't go right? So I think we see here the beginnings of the fulfillment of that Genesis 1. As we said earlier, I mean, this is wrought through with sin and the curse. So, you know, that it's not perfect, but we see good in the fulfillment of that original commission. So, you know, we follow those lines a little bit, but how do you... Can you expand that as we've just been thinking about, you know, the art and the city building and having children and um, how do how do you see that in what we do today? Can you guys see the connection of of how your work or the work of those around you can connect to that original commission? I think that's we're gonna have we're gonna have to dis- distinguish because in, in our work sometimes there's gonna be such fruitlessness and and struggle and pain that. You know, sometimes all we see is the struggle. When that's Genesis 3, that's the fall, that's the sin. But if we can see through that and understand God's design, I think you can see in, in all of our um, industries today and in how we're working. I mean, there are some industries that are inherently sinful, and we need to, uh, those are not vocations that God is calling us to pursue. But those things that God has called us to do as His image bearers, uh, I think we can see a connection and we should. It helps us, I think, to understand the purpose of work, to understand how God has... He can, his design for humanity hasn't changed from the beginning. We are still called to be His image bearers, whether that's in creating art, um, you know, or arranging materials, whether it's statues or music or colors, on a, you know, a painting to create art, um, whether that's manufacturing, like, you know, forging instruments of bronze and iron looks different today, but it still goes on in humans creating tools and and then all that goes you know obviously technology has come a lot wa- a long way since then organizing meetings and you know that might seem mundane meetings can be I trust me I deal with this meetings that are pointless or run inefficiently or there's a lot of brokenness in the way that meetings happen today but there's just the idea of, of organization and structure and you know building a city is going to incl- include administration and and direction and and collaboration so i think in some of our professions or our callings uh, that's that we see that aspect played out as well as design you know cr- putting together thought and intentionality to um, you know forging instruments of bronze and iron and um, you know these things building a city that doesn't just you know, they don't. You don't just sit around the fire and think, "Well, let's let's build a city tomorrow." I mean, you might say that, but you're going to have to think about it. You're going to, you know, how do you? You need to put some intentionality and some thought into how you're going to to do that. As well as you know, once you kind of think about that, once you build a city, or you know, you learn how to forge an instrument of bronze or iron, or you learn how to play the lyre or the the pipe, and all the other things that you learn, you don't want to just those things to die with you. You want to capture that knowledge, that information, that learning, that culture, and you want to pass it down to the next generation. I mean, that's essentially what we're doing in education. We're, we're taking what God, these truths that, you know, 
we've decided, you know, culture and our Department of Education and all that. But it's all from God, you know, learning how to read, learning how to understand the world, science and history. When we understand these things, it's really just passing down the knowledge about the world that God made and how we can pass that on to our children. I mean, we can see that teaching, whether that's in the home, in the homeschool, or, you know, in a public setting, or that's part of what God has, has commissioned us to do. You know, building a city is going to include governing that city and this you know especially since the fall order is not going to just maintain itself humans are not going to always love each other as they should so having order and direction and and enforcing that law is an important part as well you know food preparation food in, in industry i guess ranching all of that like trish said you know raising livestock i think that's a part of of genesis god's design and then raising and raising children i mean and we could go beyond. I mean, I hope you can see from this um, that they're really all of what we're doing today is in some way connecting into God's original design for us to, to cultivate, to care for the world, both the world itself and then the humans that occupy that world. Um, any questions on that or pushback? Or go ahead, Marcus. I've got something to add to it. So on, on all those examples, it's kind of from the perspective of like, the person who's designing, the artist, the chef who has the vision, but a lot of us have jobs that we're not like in charge. To build a city, there still has to be the guy who like takes the wheelbarrow, you know, yeah. like the cashier, the, the person who, who's the cashier or the, the laborer or whatever, and even though they don't have like, like the superior position, as we might think of it, they're right. integral to everything working together. Yeah. No, you're right. There's definitely a, you know, right. Designing and building a city is going to include everyone in that 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 process, which is a varied, you know, includes many different hands and minds working together. Um, let me just jump ahead to Exodus 31, and I want you to see to think as you think about this. You know, these are different skills as as society has gotten more complex. Um, these skills, whether it's manufacturing or teaching or law enforcement or designing or art or um, you know food, all of those, everything involved there, there's, there's going to be a, a specialization that's required where n- not all humans are going to be able to, to do all things. And that's God's design, actually, that society is built upon us working together in different roles. But as, as we develop um, those skills and ability and, and knowledge, and as that gets passed down, I thought this was interesting to look at in Exodus 31. Now, this is in the context of Moses building the, temp, uh, the tabernacle and God giving Moses direction to build the, the tabernacle. But I think there's, there's lessons we can glean from this that apply to all ways that we use our ability to, to serve God and others. So, the Lord said to Moses, See, I have called by name Bezalel, the son of Uri, the son of Hur, of the tribe of Judah. And I filled him with the Spirit of God, with ability and intelligence, with knowledge and all craftsmanship, to devise artistic designs, to work in gold, silver, and bronze, in cutting stones for setting, and in carving wood, to work in every craft. And behold, I have appointed with him Aholiab, the son of Ahisamach of the tribe of Dan. And I have given to all able men ability, that they may make all that I have commanded you. So, God is giving Moses direction about how to build the tabernacle, and it's... You know, he says here he's calling these two specific men, Bezalel and Aholiab. And then I think in other passages, 
Um, we're, we don't understand there's actually other people as well, but uh, these two men are probably the ones who are overseeing and directing this work. But uh, it's interesting, he says he's filled him with the Spirit of God. So there was, that's, that's actually, that, that phrase isn't used that often in the Old Testament. It's actually used much more infrequently than it is in the New Testament, where all of us are filled with the Holy Spirit. But Bezalel is filled with the Spirit of God for this purpose. Um, and notice he also he said he's filled him with ability and intelligence, with knowledge and craftsmanship. Now, I mean, the, the text doesn't say, so we're having to interpret here, but from what you know about the way God works and, and the world that we live in, how many of you think, uh, how do you think this filling with knowledge and skill happened? Was it, did Bezalel, you know, lay around all day until he was 50 and then he, God filled him with this in like some miraculous knowledge that just uh, developed in his mind how to work with gold and silver and bronze I mean I just think of the word curiosity like you have to be curious in order to like figure things out right so obviously God gave him a curiosity that was specific to this job that he had given him and he just kept up with it you know however however that works society where you still have to eat and whatever you know within his society he was able to really pursue his craftsmanship yeah and he was, I mean that's how it starts right when I see my son drawing houses I think huh I wonder if he's going to be an architect you right. know like you just don't know but right he was able to pursue some of his inclinations yeah and that's kind of what I'm getting at is that it's not as though God just zaps him with this knowledge and craftsmanship and ability that it, these are things that God gives him but he also you know looked at it looked at the situation humanly he's getting them by being curious by working by learning by studying by apprenticing you know he's he i think that God God gave him this but he gave it it to him through his ordinary we might think skill a gathering of of learning learning this trade, you know, working with gold, silver, and bronze, with stones, with wood. And then even down here, he says, I've given to all able men ability. So, you know, we might think that our, whatever your skills are, and you might not think you have skills, but you, you do. I mean, the, the work that you're doing, there's a specialization as you have each, you know, as we eat, God has made us all in his image to work in different ways. And that those abilities might might not be, we're obviously probably, I don't know if any of us are working in gold and silver and bronze these days, but the skills that God has given us to, to serve Him and to serve others are things that God gives us, and yet, and yet they're also things that we are responsible to cultivate and, and develop and, and pursue. So, remember, Paul said, what do you have that you did not receive? And every good and perfect gift comes from God. So God is the one who gives us these things, and yet they're still, we're responsible to, to learn and grow and cultivate them. Yep. Go ahead, Raymond. So, biblically, you really very interesting and precise language. Um, the writer's use specific words very specifically for very specific reasons. God in His Spirit working through men. Um, and when He said, I have filled Him with the Spirit of God, that kind of, in my mind, implies like an ongoing um, progressive thing. Hmm. Like, yeah. with the tense of the word. So you could see this also in Exodus 28 and Exodus 36. Again, that's the context of the tabernacle, but God is the one who's giving people these skills to to build these things. And I think this applies, I think, even though the text isn't saying that specifically, that this same principle is behind really all human skill and craftsmanship. Before we move on, remember we're going to talk about work as cultivation and work as service. I just want to 
think about, go back to this picture I drew up here for a second. You know, as we're thinking about our relationship with the world that God made, with the natural world and how we're responsible to cultivate it, just quickly, just pointing out two ways that we can kind of mess this up as humans, and we see this in human society. When God's not in the picture, and we are the sovereign rulers of this world, what we often see is an abuse of the creation where we really get to make the rules. It's our planet. Um, we are, whatever, you know, whatever we have the power and authority to do, we, we do. So when we become God, we tend to exploit the world rather than cultivate the world. But then in reaction to that, some people will say, you know, that's, they see the abuses of that and they, let's see, they flip this around. And they say, okay, well, that's not right. You know, we're, we're destroying the, the rainforests and the world, and that's not, that's not good. So in reaction to that, instead of putting God back on the throne where he should be, they turn things around and say, well, the world is God, and we're just here to preserve it, and we're actually like trespassing here on this planet, and we don't have a role here, or we just need to minimize the human impact on the world, which is also, I think, a wrong view, you know, we, when we're neglecting the world, we're not cultivating it, we've also turned things upside down. But, you know, when we, when we return to the God's biblical design, when He is God, then we can avoid both those errors, when we can both, you know, we, we take a sense of stewardship of the world. It's not ours, God's the one who created it, but He put us here to rule it, so we, are, we should not exploit it, because it's not ours, but at the same time, we need to cultivate it and, and care for it and, and exercise human you know, authority and intentionality in caring for it. Any questions about work as cultivation? Um, or yeah, go ahead, um, Cheryl. Right. Well, maybe that's what I meant. I mean, I mean the, the idea that we just need to minimize our impact on it and not exercise human care for it by almost just acting as though we don't exist, like leaving the world in, an, in a pristine, unimpacted state. Does that make sense? Um, and a perfect example of that would be uh, wildfires. Yeah. Exactly. The forest here, and we think preservation, preservation, and then look where that gets us. Right. Right, exactly. Yeah. All right. Um, there's more that could be said about that, but uh, I'm going to jump over now to thinking about work as service. But I have a picture up here. Everyone know who? Um, well, this is a picture of artist rendering, creative license of Martin Luther. Um, I told you, I talked about this early on in the class, but Martin Luther was one of the things that he wrote so strongly against. Apart from, I mean, obviously, justification by faith alone was a big was was the seminal doctrine of the Reformation. But in addition to that, he saw ways that actually, and we're going to get into this later if we, hopefully we have time. But um, misunderstanding the gospel and what we're saved by led to a, a division in the world between the spiritual and the sacred. And what he meant by that is that um, in the Roman Catholic Church, 
And we see this in our own thinking at times. I mean, I see it in my thinking, so I'm sure it happens to you too. You know, it's, it was codified in doctrine in the, in the Catholic Church at the time that you know certain works that we did were acceptable to God and were necessary to gain a right standing with God. The, the sacraments and the, the penance and the confessions and the um, indulgences and um, these spiritual works were actually necessary to gain right standing with God. So there was a tendency then for people to disengage from the ordinary world and give themselves over you know, to devote themselves to God by going to the monasteries where they could pray and, and live in lifestyles of confession and prayer and, and worship and not have to deal with the ordinary affairs of everyday life, taking vows of celibacy, not having families, not having children. And so Martin Luther, as he was working through you know, the fact that we are justified by faith, that God, it's not as though God needs us to worship Him. He doesn't need our good works. He doesn't. He's not somehow enriched by the, us bringing Him indulgences or confessions. This is one of his quotes from uh, one of his writings at the time. He said, God doesn't need our good works, but our neighbor does. So he argued for and tried to, tried to act as a corrective to help the people at the time, and I think even this still applies to us today, but to realize that God has placed us in, in our life situations in our real, in, with ordinary callings and or ordinary work and relationships in order to serve other people. And that God, we're going to talk about that from 1 Corinthians 7 um, in a minute, that God has done that. He's assigned us those roles. Uh, and Tim Keller put it this way. He said, our daily work must be reconceived as an assignment from God to serve others. We'll get into that in a minute, but let me let me clarify because we're going to use this. You know, this language he says here. Tim Keller says assignment. We use, and we'll see both in the Bible and even in us talking about it. Where sometimes we'll use different words. Uh, we'll use calling, and that's not necessarily wrong. But we just need to remember words have a range of meaning. They don't always mean the same thing. So just to clarify, when we talk about God calling us or assigning us to to do certain work in, in the service of others, we need to remember. That first and foremost, our calling is to God Himself, to fellowship with Him. I mean, I'm gonna here's a couple places from First Corinthians where Paul uses this language of calling. God is faithful by whom you were called. And you know, it's not called to be a pastor, it's not called to be an elder, it's not called to be a missionary or or any other vocation. It's not called it's called into the fellowship of his son, Jesus Christ our Lord. That's the first and foremost. When the, the Bible talks about calling, you know, Romans 8, those whom he predestined, he called. You know, that in those contexts, and the primary way that the New Testament talks about calling is this calling to salvation, to God himself. Consider your calling, brothers. Not many of you were wise according to worldly standards. Not many were powerful. Not many were of noble birth. But God chose what is foolish to shame the wise. And he goes on and says, Christ is your your righteousness and wisdom and sanctification. That's that's the primary way that Scripture talks about calling. But it's not the only way. The same letter, 1 Corinthians, we you know flip over to 1 Corinthians 7, and it's actually, um, it's the same word as well. Um, we're going to see the same word calling is, is used, but 1 Corinthians 7, 17 through 24. The context here is actually right in the middle of this lengthy discussion about marriage. And um, right before this, Paul had been addressing this question, well, what if my spouse is unsaved? 
um, should I leave them? Like that's the he's trying to address that question. He's saying no. If your if your spouse is unsaved, if, if the wife has an unbelieving husband, she should remain in in the marriage. And the same thing if the husband has an unbelieving wife, he should remain in that marriage. And so then he says this, and I think from that reflection as he's talking to them about marriage, he then kind of backs up and says this, these verses here. He says, Only let each person lead the life that the Lord has assigned to him and to which God has called him. This is my rule in all the churches. And that's the overarching principle. And then he's going to give us two examples. First in 18 through 20, he's going to talk about circumcision. And then in 21 and 22, he's going to talk about slavery and freedom. So in 18, to 18, he says, was anyone at the time of his call already circumcised? Well, okay, even here, there's already, we see the use of calling in two different aspects. So in the first verse, let each person lead the life the Lord has assigned to him and to which God has called him. So there he's talking about, you know, immediately prior to this, he was saying, you know, remain in the marriage with your unbelieving spouse. So he's talking about the, the ordinary, your, your earthly relationships and responsibilities. Lead that life. God's assigned it to you. God's called you to it. And then in 18, he says, was anyone at the time of his call already circumcised? So there he's using call in the sense that when, when you were saved, when, when God called you to himself, when you were saved, uh, were you already circumcised? Let him not seek to remove the marks of circumcision. Was anyone uncircumcised? Let him not seek circumcision. For neither circumcision counts for anything nor uncircumcision, but keeping the commandments of God. Each one should remain in the condition in which he was called. That's not necessarily as directly applicable to us, at least in this topic of work. But you can, what, he, what the underarching or the undergirding principle here is he's saying, you know, if you were called as a Jew, if you were practicing as a Jewish um, culture, don't try to stop, change that. Don't become, don't try to become a Gentile. And likewise, if you were a Gentile, don't try to become a Jew. The gospel doesn't, doesn't require you to change your culture. You let them remain in the condition in which he was called, verse 20. And now he gives this other example, which is more applicable for our situation thinking about work. In verse 21, he says, were you a bond servant when called? Do not be concerned about it. But if you can gain your freedom, avail yourself of the opportunity. For he who was called in the Lord as a bondservant is a freedman of the Lord. Likewise, he who was free when called is a bondservant of Christ. You were bought with a price. Do not become bondservants of men. So, brothers, in whatever condition each was called, there let him remain with God. In 21 and 22, he's speaking to those who are... He, he addresses both the freedman and the bondservant. And... You notice what he's telling them in verse 21. He says, "When you're bond ser- if you're a bondservant, then don't be concerned about it. And likewise, he was called in the, in the Lord. Um, likewise, he was free when called as a bondservant of Christ. So he's telling them that the, the, the gist of his exhortation to them is not to be concerned about changing their social status in society. Like, if you were a, a bondservant, then don't seek to, be, to change that. If you were a freedman, then don't seek to, be, to change that. Um, you were bought with a price. Do not become bondservants of men. In whatever condition you were called, there let him remain with God. To summarize, he's saying you don't necessarily, when you become a Christian, it doesn't mean that you change your culture. You don't become a, you don't, this is a, you know, in Islam, if you become a Muslim, you basically have to adopt all of the Arabic or the, the cultures and customs that changes your culture. But as a Christian, he's saying it doesn't actually, you don't, your culture doesn't need to change. And also, your position in society doesn't even have to change. You don't have to think that there's a certain way to live, that you have to, a certain higher calling that you need to pursue in order to be a true Christian. Like, in fact, 
he's thinking here of the condition in which they're called, and he's seeing that God has actually assigned them to that position, that God has placed them in that position. So he says, there let him remain with God. You know, we live in a different age today, so we have a lot more social mobility than people in that day. So in a sense, we do have to think a little bit more about how that applies in our day, where we have, I was just talking about this the other day, we have so many options, which is a blessing and a curse, but um, you know they didn't necessarily have those options. And yet still, we see Paul's exhortation to them is to think that, to, to see their ordinary circumstances, being a slave, being a freedman, being married to an unbeliever, being circumcised or not, as something to which God has called them, the Lord has assigned to him. So to summarize that, calling is used first and foremost to God, salvation, and actually to the church. The word church actually means the called out ones. But in the secondary sense, it's, it, we should think of um, calling. We just need to be careful when we use the language because it can mean two different things, and sometimes we'll blur them. So assignment might be a way to avoid that, just that uh, confusion. But if we think of ourselves as being assigned from God to serve others in ordinary social and economic settings, that is, in our work. This is what Martin Luther was so concerned to recover because in his day, there was a sense that there was an, uh, um, a thinking, a thought process that you had to serve God in the church for it to really be valuable to God, to really please God. You had to be in the church uh, or in a, a religious calling. But I think this is massive in, this, in, the, in the sense of, you know, for each one of us, I know it's been for me, but also for all of for you for all of you to think about your work and your circumstances in this way you know thinking about this where does this vocation come from okay so i, I vocation i didn't clarify it, but vocation is that it just comes from the latin word some of you classical conversation people could correct me but i think it's vocatus or vocata vocatis some it's it's the latin word for calling and actually i, I went and looked up this verse and i found a latin version of it and it's just in first corinthians 7 that word voc- vocatus is used over and over again so this is where martin luther developed that idea of vocation or that you assigned this doctrine this idea that that title the doctrine of vocation but where does this calling come from now it's important, I think, just like we saw with um, Bezalel and Aholiab, that in one sense, God filled them with skill, and in another sense, they developed their skill through intentionality and learning. I think we can see the same thing with this calling. In that, and some of you may even be able to attest to this from your own life. And I mean, in one sense, I think we can say, like in verse 17, that God is the one that has called us and assigned us to different life circumstances, whatever that might be. But in another sense, God does that. How does God do that? He does it through ordinary things. My dad was an engineer. I thought, oh, uh, I I kind of started to explore that when I was getting older, 17, 18, and I found an aptitude for it, and I decided I got... You know, affirmation from people that said I would do well at that, and so I pursued that. I got training, and then I got a job opportunity, and all these these are ordinary things that all contributed in my story to put me where I am now. And it's not like I necessarily chose or wanted or even pursued my specific role and that I have now. It's that um, God used all of those ordinary things to put me where I am, and 
in a sense, it came, in a sense, it came from outside me. It came from from God. And I think you know, I, I know I've talked to others who can say the same thing. You know, if you think about your life circumstances as something that God has providentially ordained to put you where you are to serve Him, then you can you can begin to see how you're, it, it matters. What you're doing is actually part of God's God's plan. It's part of His design for you to serve and to serve Him and to serve others in your circumstances. But the other thing that's imp- uh, I want to point out is. You know, go back to First Corinthians seven. He had that little aside to the slaves. <laughs> he said, "You know, if you if you're a, sl- a slave, then don't worry about it. Like, be content to serve as a slave." And then he said, "But if you can gain your freedom, then do that." So, in this, our calling as believers that never changes. Our, we're called to Christ. We're called to His kingdom, to His church. That doesn't change. But our calling in this secondary sense, our assignment to God, assignment from God to serve others in the world. That actually can change. That's not a "thus saith the Lord" um, doctrine that you must be a nurse or a teacher or a stay-at-home mom or a, whatever your your role is in society. It's not a. We see even from First Corinthians seven that it can change, and we're going to talk more about that in one of our later lessons. We're going to specifically, you know, as as today, you know, much more than in the first century, we have such opportunity for mobility. We really can in ways that they couldn't, ask the question, like, how, knowing what I know about myself and my life circumstances, my, the opportunities that are around me, how can I best serve God and others? And we have, you know, not an infinite amount of opportunities because those circumstances <laughs> are part of the givenness of your situation. You can't change, you know, if you want to go be a fighter pilot, but you have seven children and a wife, and being a fighter pilot would require going off in the military, alone, leaving them for long periods of time, like, that's part of your situation. You probably should understand that God is not calling you to do something that would require you to neglect other responsibilities He's given you. So, the in, there's not infinite opportunities, but it can change, and we do have the opportunity to think about how we can best serve Him in this life. I'm going to speed up for... Uh, I, I'm, try, I'm really trying to figure out how to plan for an hour, and I, sometimes I think I'm afraid I'm going to like finish in 30 minutes, and now I'm, I've got five slides lit to go in 10 minutes. So, um, But as you think about this, you know, as our work serving others in the situation that God has called you to, something that Martin Luther talked about, I'm going to, I'm going to go over this quickly, but I, to my knowledge... This was something that he coined. I don't know. I haven't heard other people using it. But he talked about the masks of God in society. You see this in Matthew 25. We're going to see it also in Colossians 3. And by by masks of God, what he meant, you know, he's trying to, again, um, pull the rug out from under this view that says, and really to serve God, you need to go to the monastery and just devote yourself to spiritual work. In Matthew 25, Jesus tells us this um, parable, this teaching, um, and he says he talks about when the Son of Man comes in his glory and all his angels with him, he'll sit on his glorious throne, he'll gather the sheep and the goats. And then maybe you're familiar with this passage, but he, he calls the sheep before him and he, he 
calls them into his kingdom, and then he, he tells them, you know, enter into my kingdom. I was hungry, and you gave me food. I was thirsty, and you gave me drink. I was a stranger, and you welcomed me. And I was naked, and you clothed me. I was sick, and you visited me, and so on. And the righteous will say, like, when, how did we do that? You know, we didn't see you, Jesus. You weren't here. How did we do these things for you? And in verse 40, he says, the king will answer them, truly I say to you, as you did it to one of the least of these my brothers, you did it to me. What Jesus is teaching there is that when we're serving and caring for other people, we're actually serving God. In this case, it's in the words of Jesus. We're serving Jesus by serving other people. So it's not as though God looks down at you and says, oh, look, you know, Caleb's reading his Bible this morning. He's serving me by reading his Bible this morning. I mean, he wants you to commune with him, but it's not as though that's a work that somehow is acceptable to God that gains you credit, heavenly speaking, that actually what God, he wants you to commune with him, um, but he, the work that you do for other people, that seems ordinary, you might not even think of it as spiritual work necessarily, but if you're doing it out of faith in God and love for others, that we, ordinary things that we do in caring for other people are actually serving the Lord, which is a little more, it's even more explicit in Colossians 3, where Paul tells the bondservants to obey those who are their earthly masters. So again, these are bondservants. Their earthly masters are Roman higher-ups, nobility, you know, people in the Roman society that had enough money and status to have bondservants. And their bondservants become Christians, and Paul tells them to obey their earthly masters, not by way of eye service, but with, but not as people pleasers, but with sincerity of heart, fearing the Lord. Whatever you do, work heartily as for the Lord and not for men, knowing that from the Lord you will receive the inheritance as your reward. And then he says this mind-boggling thing. He says, you are serving the Lord Christ. Now, what was a Roman bondservant likely doing? I mean, he wasn't going off into spiritual retreats and you know, reading. He didn't have a Bible. I mean, they didn't have Bibles to, to pass out. He wasn't doing spiritual work. I don't know, he's mopping the floors, he's caring for the stable animals, um, he's running errands in the in the city. Um, he's doing ordinary things to serve his master in the situation that God has placed him. And Paul says that when you do this, when you do it heartily as for the Lord and not for men, you are serving the Lord Christ. He's not saying that Everyone who does anything is serving the Lord. But that as Christians, we, when we look at the world with eyes of faith, and we understand that we're serving God, and that God has placed us in our given situations, our circumstances, that we can do, when we, when we do those things out of faith in God, and when we do it as unto the Lord, that it actually is service to the Lord. That we are serving the Lord through the ordinary things that we're doing. So, in that sense, Martin Luther called this the mask of God because, you know, the servant was serving his master. But reconceived as an assignment from God, as his vocation, he's actually serving the, serving the Lord Christ. So Christ, in a sense, what he would say is hidden in his master, in that the service that he's offering to his master is actually service to the Lord. It works the other way as well. In that Luther talked about these verses in Psalm 147. Praise the Lord, O Jerusalem. Praise your God, O Zion, for he strengthens the bars of your gates. He blesses your children within you. He makes peace in your borders. He fills you with the finest of wheat. So 
Luther commented on these verses and said that God is the one, he's praying, the psalmist here is praying and saying that God is the one who strengthens the bars of your gates. He is the one who makes peace in your borders. God is the one who is making peace and strengthening a city. But then he asks, how does God do this? How does God make peace in a city? How does God strengthen the, the status of a city? Through us. In a sense, through all of us, as all of us have a calling to be citizens, to look out for well-being of our, ourselves and those within our immediate sphere of influence. But in another sense, there are those who have a calling, a vocation, to make peace, to enforce the peace, to, to um, uphold peace and order in, in society. In that sense, when, when that happens, in ordinary activity, when, when law enforcement officers or governing authorities make laws, enforce laws, we're going to see later, I'm not going to get into it today, but in Romans 12, even in, in like exacting punishment, when a judge is exacting punishment on a, someone who has committed a crime, that God is working through all of those things to make peace and to strengthen a city. So Luther said even in this, like that we can understand all of those works that we're doing to enforce, uh, to make peace and to strengthen a city as masks of God in the sense that God is the one doing those things, but He's doing it through humans that He has placed in these responsibilities, in these places. Matthew 6.11, Jesus prays, Give us this day our daily bread. Same thing. We see God is the one giving it. But how does He give it? Does it appear on your plate when you pray it? Does it the doorbell ring and you go out there and there's the food on the, on the doorstep? Um, how does... You know, think through this. Maybe you've already done this, but think through all of those human efforts and callings that were necessary to put your lunch on your plate when you eat it today. Uh, it's... There's a lot. It, it would go even further than you think. I mean, there's some obvious ones. You know, the farmer maybe, and the the baker, or, you know, depending on what you're eating. The, um, but those people that built roads so that food could be transported and designed vehicles so those vehicles, you know, so that, that could transport the food. And the people who sold the food, the cash register, and uh, people who built the facility where the food was stored and you know it just goes on you just you know all of these things we see are god is working through those people to provide for daily needs of his people luther said god milks the cows through the vocation of the milkmaids does that make sense just thinking through how i know i know when i first started thinking i mean it was hard for me to it's it's re, it's a bit of a mental adjustment to to realize that god is working through all of these things, and that your work, what you're doing, is actually somewhere that God has placed you to do that. Well, One, I remember as a young person, like imagining that somehow I was going to, like, all of a sudden there was going to be this inspiration. I was going to know what I needed to do with my life, right? But when you turn your view to being like, okay, I I'm working for the Lord, whatever I'm doing, it just kind of is almost free. Because God gives us all inclinations. He gives us brains to figure out what we're good at or what we want to do or what we need to do. Right. Uh, and it, it, it opens up all kinds of options to where I'm not paralyzed by fear. Oh, no, what if I choose the wrong thing? Right. No, all of a sudden, I can serve the Lord and glorify Him with anything. Right. 
Yeah, I think that's exactly right, Trish. It really is freeing. Um, we're going to get more into this later. Um, I don't really have time to get into it in great detail now, but one thing that you're talking about the freedom that we get from this understanding that God is placing you. He's going to work through ordinary things to place you where He wants, and you you can serve Him in, in whatever it is. You know, then our our work. It's we under, if we understand it as something that God has called us to do to serve others. It's no longer this. Um, you know, it doesn't have to bear the weight of your identity becoming authenticating who you are and you know becoming a way that you would judge your self-worth your self-esteem you discover yourself you find yourself it doesn't have to be your salvation in that sense it doesn't have to be everything to you that you it can come down a notch in the sense that it's not your primary identity we know that our identity is in god as we as he is he's our our um, our savior our king and we can serve him freely we're going to get into that more as we think about the curse and how that, you know, these things, self-esteem, self-worth, self-discovery, trying to like, find our meaning and salvation and purpose in our work, that's really an effect of the fall. Uh, but when we th- understand our, our vocation in this sense, it can be freed from having to bear that weight. Remember, remembering that God doesn't need our work. He's not, no, no matter what it is, God doesn't need us. He's not served by human hands. And when we do understand that, that God has called us to do what we're doing, whatever it is, it could change. You may God, maybe God calls you for a season to, to, to do something. It might be different in the future. But while you're called to do it, you are to do it well. Do it to the best of your ability, as unto the Lord. Dorothy Sayers, who wrote about work, she says, The church's approach to an intelligent carpenter is usually confined to exhorting him to not be drunk and disorderly in his leisure hours, and to come to church on Sundays. What the church should be telling him is this, the very first demand that his religion makes upon him is that he should make good tables. <laughs> I think there's more context there. I mean, obviously his religion makes other demands upon him, but at least one of them is that he would make good tables, that he would do his work well. You know, as Christians, we're not to somehow think that our work doesn't matter and that we can do it however we want. I mean, in Colossians 3, Paul told his, the bondservants the opposite. Your work matters. Do it as unto the Lord. You're serving the Lord Christ. You know, if you're going to make a table you want for the Lord, you want it to be a good table. And you know, apply that in whatever you're doing in your, in your workplace, in your vocation. So, just some points of application. I hope this is freeing. I know it has been for me and that helping me to just have contentment. That we can have contentment in doing ordinary work of caring for the world and for other people. Because God has assigned us to this work. We have also the freedom to pursue different jobs without seeking to find our purpose and meaning from the work itself. When we understand our work as a calling from God, our work we ground our work in something greater than itself. And third, we should seek to do our best in our work, both because our work is our work for others is serving God, and our skill and competence is a way to love our neighbors. Any Final closing questions or comments on that before we pray? Melinda. I saw an interview by the Gettys a few years ago, and they were interviewing this really good guitar player. Like, he was really good. He made really good guitars for a lot of people that you recognize. And he was talking about how when he was making a guitar, he ran into these problems. He couldn't get the guitar to do what he wanted. Like, he would stop and pray. <laughs> and the Lord help him 
figure out this problem with this guitar. And I was shocked at the time because, like you were talking about, I had this sort of like, well, why is this making this guitar such a spiritual experience for him? Right. You know, like, wait, that's not how, you know, that's not how it works. But it really challenged me. Like, okay, I can stop and pray about just this secular thing that right. I'm doing, like my lesson plan. How can I explain the present perfect tense? Like, I can pray about that. Right. And it was, I can pray about figuring out this recipe, and it was really challenging not see that division. Yeah. Alright, last comment. Yeah, I've got this little comic that shows this guy he's talking to Jesus. He's like, hey, Jesus, you think I should add a little fish symbol to my company's logo so people know that I'm a Christian business? And Jesus says, no, why, why don't you leave the fish logo out and see if they can figure it out by your craftsmanship and the attention to detail. <laughs> yeah. Alright, let me close in prayer. Our Father in Heaven, God, we thank You for Your love for us. We thank You that You have called us to Yourself in Christ, that because of Christ we are Your children, that You are restoring us, all that is broken in our lives because of our sin, that You are restoring and and healing and and forgiving um, in Christ. And we thank You, we ask that You would help us to do good work unto You, and that you would be pleased with our work, that you would help us all as we're in our journeys to, to see our work as opportunities to serve you by, by doing good work and by serving others. And we pray this all in Jesus' name. Amen.